Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the In For A Penny podcast. I'm Mark Schoffman, a freelance personal finance journalist, and I'm joined by my financial planner friend, Joshua Gersler, who runs an advisory business called The Orchard Practice. Hello. If you'd like to know a little bit more about us, you can check me out at www.cavendishcontent.com and josh at www.topfs.co.uk. Each episode, we aim to give our perspective on the world of finance and money and discuss some of the issues that crop up in business as well as everyday life. We hope that you'll learn something from our podcast as well as have some fun too. So welcome to this week's show. We're delighted to have with us Jason Wilde from Paragon, who is a regional manager. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. Jason's been with Paragon for about 12 and a half years now. Correct. Uh, previously, you worked had a short stint at CHL I did. Mortgages yes. as a business development manager. Yes. Yep. Uh, before that, a mortgage advisor. Correct. So okay. you've been on both sides of the fence. Yep. And before that, yep. worked at a state agent. I did. Yeah. So you've been all over the property I market. Have. Yeah. I won't go before that because I, I, I was a lifeguard before that, but it's just totally unrelated. I to was wondering why you were sitting here in your speedos, Jason, <laughs> but now we know. <laughs> so tell us, um, I'm interested to know actually uh, what it was like working as an estate agent in the late 90s. Really enjoyed it, actually. So I grew up uh, working in Hastings. Well, so I grew up living in Hastings, actually. Uh, down on the south coast um, and I started working in a state agency there I kind of left school I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do I was thinking about going travelling but I was a relatively good swimmer so I had a lifeguard exam so I was kind of lifeguarding I did that for a small amount of time maybe a couple of years kind of on and off But that's when had... Baywatch was at its prime I think <laughs> absolutely yes yes so uh, yeah unfortunately mine was in a swimming pool in the odd stint on the beach okay. so uh, okay. yeah, there wasn't anything sort of Baywatch orientated but it, it was did a good did you do the run and the, the sort of soundtrack did you have that in your head every you time were, every time yeah every time every single yeah. time and uh, it's uh, it's I'd say, I mean, I've got a couple of kids, one who's seven and one who's four, and we encourage them to get into swimming. And I'd say that when they're old enough to start working whilst they're still at school, you know, when they're sixth form, I think lifeguards are a great environment because it was casual work. You could work in and around your school hours and, and it was relatively well paid back then as well. I'd always had an interest in property uh, and was taken on as a trainee estate agent for a company called Andrews uh, down in Hastings. So I kind of started... Um, we had a big office down there, so we had eight negotiators. Um, so it was it was one of the leading branches. And you kind of went in, and you think, "Blimey, you know, you're up against some strong characters here." But you soon kind of adapt your style, and you, you just kind of sink or swim in that environment. And the market was booming in those uh, well, days. Well, bizarrely, so when I when I joined was in '99. It was starting to pick up, but uh, we, the classic example we used to have a lot of borrowers, sorry, a lot of uh, applicants come into us. First time buyers would say, you know, we're looking up to, it used to be around about 35,000, used to be the magical figure. Mm. They would go away with a huge bundle of property details. That was when I first started working there. And I think the Telegraph or someone then wrote an article around about Easter time in uh, 99 saying that Hastings was a real hotspot. It sounds like an exaggeration, but practically overnight it took off. And we went from selling, you know, nice Victorian one or two bed flats down on the seafront for about 25,000 for a one bed, maybe about sort of like late 30s for a two bed. Within six, seven months, those had gone up and they were selling for 60, 70 for a one bed. So one article like, from uh, the paper. It, it, and it genuinely did. And any of the guys that, that were working at that time in the state agency back there would kind of notice that over that Easter period, it just took off and it continued growing. And we had, we had a massive influx of 
call them London, but they weren't necessarily kind of central London. It was it was obviously predominantly kind of around those sort of areas, selling up, you know, maybe two or three bed houses up there. And what they could buy down Hastings direction uh, was phenomenal. For and what money. made you decide to go from estate agent to mortgage advisor? So when I worked in a state agency, um, we had a mortgage advisor uh, in-house. Um, became very, very close to the guy who was working. He was a lot older than everyone in the office, but he was uh, he, he was a good guy, actually. You know, he liked to laugh, and he was um, he, he was very good at his job. He came across quite well. He would often do appointments sat in the office, and I used to sit in front of him. So I could kind of always earwig on him talking about things. And I just had a fascination with mortgages in the early days. I uh, didn't have a mortgage at that particular point, but I was always asking him questions uh, and, you know, trying to sort of listen to what he was going on about. And that was back in the day when endowments were quite popular. So they were selling a lot of endowments and yeah. just trying to get my head around it and kind of learn. Uh, and I sort of made it clear to him that I wanted to get into mortgages. So he then set me up uh, down the route of going down the CMAP route. And then you decided to take the next step and work for a bank or for a lender mm. and haven't looked back since. No. Well, <laughs> no. So I took the view when I was working as an advisor, um, I really enjoyed it, but I got itchy feet being in the office all day. Um, and when I was practicing estate agency, you could still get out and about. Going, I know you can when you're an advisor, but I was basing an estate agent, so it was always like you had to be there. Um, I was playing football at the time as well and... Obviously, sometimes it involved working Saturdays and I was just starting to get a little bit frustrated with the working hours that I would miss football. And then the, the following Saturday when I was available, I was starting on the bench and it just, I got to a stage, I was thinking, yeah, I'd, I just want to make a move. And a couple of BDMs that, you know, would regularly come in, as, as you will know, you, you end up getting on with them and build up a relationship. And I was always speaking to them about getting into the industry and they were saying, you know, the main thing, if you understand mortgages and you can speak to people, you can do the job. But trying to get that foot in the door with a lender back in 2007 was difficult. And quite a few of the current BDMs you will see may have been taken on by similar lenders to CHL who were doing a mass recruitment drive, but they were interested in brokers rather than established BDMs. And that's how I got my foot in the door. Okay. Yeah. So was it easier to become a mortgage advisor and get the qualifications because you'd seen the agency side as well? So you had an understanding of it. Totally market. agree. Yeah, absolutely. From from understanding the buying process and, and everything that go, kind of goes with it from right away through to the legal side and the pressures obviously people are under as well. I think that really helped when I went into the mortgage advising side. And also I think when you're going into the BDM side, I think to have sat your side of the desk as well and realise some of the implications. The classic example I'll always use is, you know, we try and get this message across to the guys in the office that if Josh rings up, for example, and the office is saying, look... Don't answer. Well, yeah, no, yeah, ignore that call, yeah. We should have this case offered today. Josh is going to relay that to his borrower. The borrower is probably going to relay that to the estate agents. If for some reason it doesn't happen today, that then causes issues. And it's not mm. necessarily the end of the world, but Josh has then potentially got on slightly awkward phone calls. So there's kind of knock-on effects to everything that kind of goes on. And, and I think I that's think right. Well, that, that's one of the biggest frustrations we have is when we get information yeah. from a lender, yeah. which is false. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we relay that time frame to the clients and yes. th- they lose a bit of trust in us. Totally agree. And it's yeah. beyond our control. So it's it's good that you are aware, aware of that and trying yes. to prevent that from happening. Yeah, and we're working. And Bazali was over in the office um, on Wednesday. We had a sales meeting over in the office. Have to go around and you speak to the underwriters when you're over there. You know, you, you, try, you, you are taking an interest in what they do outside of work. You're trying to build up a, a rapport. And one of the underwriters was talking to me about a case that was very urgent. It was one of mine uh, for a broker somewhere. And uh, she'd completely forgot to ask for the accounts. Uh, she was ready to offer the case. Realised she'd forgotten to ask for the accounts. <laughs> picked the phone up, rung the broker and said, I can't, 
I can't say anything other than I'm sorry. If you've got them, send them to me now. The broker's, broker's fine. He said, you've rung me. Rather than send an email, accounts came straight over. She worked them. She offered the case straight away. I Good. spoke to the broker yesterday on the way back. He said, it's fine. He said, I had the accounts on file anyway. So it wasn't a problem. And you know, we're trying to get that message across to the underwriters that we're all human. If you make a mistake, pick the phone up, just deal with it. Don't hide behind emails. That's good. Good attitude. Yeah. So what's Paragon like to work for? They're a really good lender, actually. I mean, I've been here uh, nearly 13 years. Um, a lot of people within our, on our side have been there for a fair while. We've got people in the office who've been there 30-odd years. My sales manager, for example, is, he's just about to go on a sabbatical for four weeks because uh, once you reach 30 years, uh, you get four weeks holiday. You have to it's a long way to wait. Uh, <laughs> <long time laughs> it's a hell of a long time, yeah. So uh, I think by the nature that a lot of people stay there for a long time, they look after their staff. Um, and I know it's, it's kind of in the news at the moment, but they're, they're very focused on uh, the staff's emotional well-being as well. So they, they've put a lot of processes in place over there. You know, we've got a whole, uh, you know, we've got an office over in Solihull. We've got London offices. We've got satellite offices all over the place. And there's probably throughout the company maybe 40 or 50 people who work remotely from home who have very little kind of daily interaction with, uh, also face-to-face act- action uh, interaction with um, people in the office. But they're, they're really good to work for. What would you say are the main responsibilities of a regional manager? This problem solving is, is one of the main ones, but I think that's where a lot of people rely on a, on a BDM is, you know, there's an issue with a potential case, but we kind of also view ourselves that we're there to add, I don't know, value to your business. Um, you know, by advice, I mean, I speak to people day in, day out about limited companies, about complex buy-to-lets. Um, there's not many people who do on your side. I appreciate there are some people on that side, but we're dealing in that specialist market inside and out. We need to know one lender's criteria, whereas you're trying to have a grasp on every lender's. And you can't. There's no way you can know exactly the insides and outs of every single lender. You can go on the websites, you can look on, on there, but often there's kind of under the table criteria that the BDMs know that, okay, it doesn't necessarily tick that box there, but we know if the case is strong enough, we could potentially put those through. It's very interesting you say that because there are lots of online systems now yes. trying to collate criteria from Absolutely. all the lenders, yes. which is fantastic. And we actually use some of those ourselves. Hmm. But the problem is, like you said, there's always under the table Absolutely. criteria that a computer system can't totally find. And I, and I, I worry that, if you just try and do something based solely on what's printed on a, a website, yes. you're, you're not going to be able to take advantage of all the intricacies of every lender. Absolutely. And, and by the marketplace that we're involved in, we're perhaps in the more complex end of the buy-to-let side of things, cases aren't black and white. There's always seems to be an issue somewhere. Some of them are major issues that we're never going to get around, but others are a case of, you know, we have, for example, we have a minimum income that's 25000 Someone's ability to repay a mortgage of 500000 if they earn 25000 it's kind of neither here nor there. So we don't pay a mass amount of attention to that, as in the income comes back at 235 but they've got a lot of income in the background, uh, you know, perhaps they've got savings, etc., or investments. There's no reason to decline just because it doesn't tick that box. But you're right, when you're looking at these sourcing systems, it's 25000 and we won't do it. So yeah, there's a lot of human interaction, especially in this marketplace, that we need to come in. So I'd, I'd kind of say in summary for someone like myself is to be the first port of call to discuss cases you know we're not afraid to say no if it's going to be you know it's going to be an absolute nightmare an early no from my point of view saves everyone it saves your time saves the borrower's time and saves our time underwriting something that was never going to go anywhere but equally it's trying to kind of work those cases that 
do need a bit of cajoling, do need for me to potentially go away and present the case to someone in our credit team and say, it's not ideal, but there's some really good plus points on it. So it's really to kind of fight your 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 side of it and obviously for the for the borrowers as well because they're the end uh, the end product that we're okay. trying to get through so historically you've mainly been a buy to let yes. lender i know you do residential as well yes. now how how do you view the uh, buy to let market at the moment really strong it is really strong it's, it's taken some uh, some adverse press obviously we've had the stamp duty deadline sorry threshold that was introduced a couple of years ago had a big impact I'm sure you were busy running up until that day yeah. on the final deadline. Yeah, it was very, very busy. I think it was an eight end of March, end of March I think 2016. That's I think it. It yeah, so it's very busy. Then the April afterwards. Um, yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was quiet. Um, but maybe from kind of May, June, July onwards, it just started to pick up again. And it's almost like I think buy to let will take a kick in in certain uh, kind of areas, especially when you're looking at kind of fiscal policies. But landlords generally tend to adapt. Lenders generally tend to adapt. The stamp duty hasn't really caused a massive amount of issue in the long run. The big one that we're seeing now is the introduction of the Section 24 tax changes that are being phased in. Um, that's perhaps sort of making people refocus on their buy-to-let portfolio. Do you want to so explain so- what that is? I can cover it, yeah. Um, it's High in- level. Yeah, high level. Okay, yeah. So, uh, in simple terms, it's been phased in over the uh, past couple of years. Uh, but as from April 2021, you will no longer be able to offset your finance costs at your higher rate of tax. So, it's really going to have a big impact on anyone who is a higher rate taxpayer or was pushed into the higher tax rate bracket. So, you'll only be able to offset it at 20%. So, what we're finding is that because it's been phased in over the past couple of years, um, what we find is that borrowers who are now doing their tax returns are actually seeing it starting to buy at home now. And they're kind of looking at their profits that they're making on their uh, buy-to-lets uh, and are maybe questioning what they're going to do going forward. I think depending on who you read in the press, there's been a max, mass exit of buy-to-let landlords. We haven't seen it. What we've seen is we've seen landlords perhaps re reconforming their portfolios, perhaps getting rid of one or two that aren't performing. We've also seen a scenario where you know borrowers have got three or four buy-to-lets um, that have been standard kind of flats or houses. And they're looking at that and saying, well, actually, if I'm going to go on the taxation, I'm possibly better off changing these properties over, disposing of them, and just ploughing it into one high-yielding property, which might be a house in multiple occupation, student let, for example. So uh, it's, it's a real busy time at the moment, but it's more for the complex end of buy-to-let. There are other changes coming through, though, that let's say the government has proposed scrapping Section 21, like Correct. no fault eviction notices. Yes. And a lot of of the stuff I write about around that is warning that this that will be one of the main deterrents for landlords entering and kind of building their portfolios because it's going to be harder, allegedly, for them to get their properties back. Yeah, I think from our point of view, it depends how it's... How it's done, obviously, we know they're proposing to remove Section 21, which I think then Section 8 then comes in. And we're kind of of the view that if they can adapt Section 8 to allow for, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, the borrower wants to move back into their property or perhaps to sell the property going forward, it might be a bit more time consuming. But landlords we're speaking to aren't being put off by it. Um, but I know that there's a lot of stuff in the press. My mother-in-law, for example, she's a few buy-to-lets and she ran me in a great panic when they introduced it. And I think when we sent some stuff through that we had uh, on there, she was kind of saying, well, it's a bit up in the air at the moment uh, and whether or not she should be worried or not about it. But again, we're kind of of the view that if Section 8 is amended, then perhaps it, it's not going to be as, as disastrous perhaps what some people think. Because Section 8 currently only lets you evict if it's if there are rental arrears, doesn't it? Correct, yeah. But, um, but I think the things that we're kind of, it's not just Paragon that are saying this, but if they can adapt that, if they leave it as it is, yeah. then I totally agree. But if they can put some adaptations in it to allow for vacant possession sale or for the borrower to move back in, uh, then potentially the removal of Section 21 wouldn't be as bad as it initially sounded. Does 
uh, Paragon have a view on letting to tenants on benefits? We do. We always have done. Uh, and we would struggle to, I know the whole market has moved along the lines, and this isn't trying to score points, but by the nature of the environment that we've always worked in, there's been houses of multiple occupation. Mm. I know you can't generalise, but a lot of those do tend to be social tenants. We have absolutely no issues with it. We've seen a big drive towards landlords letting their properties directly to local authorities on three or five year agreement. And we've always done that. We're fine with it. But social tenants, we've we've always been in that marketplace. We've no issues with that. That's and I know positive. the market seems to be coming around on that side. Yeah. Now. So it's obviously the test case. Um, with NatWest. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was an unfortunate situation uh, for the lady there. But I suppose ultimately it's probably going to help a lot of other people out. You mentioned um, the tax implications yeah. of buy-to-let portfolios. Yes. Are you noticing any issues? We are, yes. Uh, the big issue we're noticing at the moment and one thing, so I was at the uh, National Landlords Conference, uh, I think it may have been about May time, and uh, we had a presentation there. Um, and the, the thing that we're trying to get across as a broker is that with all the tax changes that are coming in, we're trying to stress the method. You shouldn't do anything about your finance until you've spoken to, your mor- until you've spoken to a tax advisor. But equally, you shouldn't do anything about your taxation until you've then spoken to your mortgage advisor. The reason why we use that is what we're seeing at the moment. We're seeing borrowers with established portfolios of properties that are held in their own personal name. They're speaking to their tax advisors. It's not everyone, but it's becoming more and more common now and that some of these events, there are companies out there promoting this, which is great for the borrower's point of view, but when the borrowers want finance going forward, it can cause issues. We're effectively, to use an example, if I had, say, 10 properties in my own personal name, I'm paying personal taxation on that. The Section 24 changes, I'm looking at my tax becoming higher and higher. The accountant's suggesting that I set up a beneficial interest to divert all of my rental income through to a limited company. And then the, the rents are then declared through the limited company and corporation tax. We're not saying there's anything wrong with that from a legal point of view, but from a lender's point of view, we and many other lenders will say thank you, but we're not prepared to lend. We wouldn't give any of our existing borrowers permission to do it. It's in our terms and conditions. Many other lenders are exactly the same. They wouldn't give permission to do it. There are a few lenders out there who would say that's fine, we're prepared to lend, but as you probably know from the mortgage market, what they then do is their rates are that much higher and then you're restricting yourself to the marketplace so but what's the difference between doing that and just someone coming to you as a new applicant through a limited company so the the difference from our side of things is that if they're coming to us and to purchase a property through a limited company that property is going to be owned by the limited company yeah. it's going to be all the ducks are going to be lined up on that land registry will reflect uh, the ownership whereas the way that these borrowers are potentially doing it is that land registry differs from who the holds the mortgage and, and we effectively say it just needs to be lined up so if we're lending to an individual we expect that individual to be receiving the rent and declaring the rent if we're lending to a limited company then we expect exactly the same from the limited what company. about have you thought about setting up a product where the individual and the limited company are jointly on the mortgage uh, we have, we have. Um, but and why was that ruled out? Uh, I, I, you know what, I can't give you the answer to that. Okay. Um, but they, we have had a few inquiries on that, where one applicant is an individual, the other one is a limited company, um, and there's something that prevents us from doing one or the other. Okay. Sorry, one or the, sorry, it has to be one or the other uh, rather than the joint basis on that. Yes. So, could you give us an example of why a mortgage advisor or an end borrower might come to Paragon? Yeah, of course. Um, I'd say with the way the market's gone, if you have someone who comes to see you, for example, first-time landlord looking at buying a property at 50% loan-to-value, you know, they've got stacks of income in the background, 
Paragon's probably not going to be their their lender of choice. Um, we more position ourselves in the portfolio sector. So the way the market's gone, as you're aware, that with the Prudential Regulation Authority kind of defining who is a portfolio and who isn't a portfolio landlord, um, we we probably specialise in the more portfolio end of the, of the market. That said, that exact same borrowers two, three years ago would never have dreamt to go back and limited companies, but it's quite common now for those exact same borrowers now to have sought the tax advice and now come to a lender and say, well, actually, I want to buy my first property. It is low loan to value, but we're going to do it through a limited company. And the moment they put a limited company in front of it, that's when you find the likes of Paragon coming up. So I'd say the predominantly our business at the moment is being driven by limited companies, but it's also being driven by large borrowers, large amounts of properties, properties in uh, houses multiple occupation uh, we've got to 20 rooms locks on so we do some real kind of chunky properties and a lot of borrowers like the hmos for the rental returns on there uh, but as well as that you've got freehold blocks so a block of flats that someone may have built may have developed left it all in one freehold title that kind of stuff is really where okay. the paragon are position themselves have you got any uh, tricky mortgages that you've got through recently that you're pleased with practically every day yeah um <laughs> give us an example I, I, i'd say the most the common one that we're getting at the moment is limited company structures. So if I was going to sit here and talk about our standard criteria for a limited company uh, is that to use me and my wife for an example, we could set up a limited company today. I have 40% of shares. She has 40% of shares. Our two kids who are seven and four, they could be uh, minority shareholders. We're fine with that. Um, we'll do that. And you find most lenders will, will be okay with that. But where we're finding is that this limited company that I want to borrow through is then owned by another limited company that's owned by another limited company. So what you find is like subsidiary kind of layer companies going through. We'll do them, but ultimately we kind of need to get through to the ultimate beneficial owner, who is the ultimate person in charge of that. And we require the directors to be identical across the two. And it's probably examples of where underwriting is spending a lot of time at the moment is just trying to dig that little bit deeper and find out who is the ultimate beneficial owner of the company we're lending to. Are you finding that the underwriters are having to dig or are the people submitting applications telling you that at the start? A uh, bit of both, actually. Um, it depends who the applications come from. We find the brokers that are perhaps specialising in limited companies, this is a generalisation by the way, but the brokers that are specialising in limited companies and are dealing with multiple lenders generally kind of tend to know what underwriters are looking for. But underwriters will still go look into, obviously they have their mandates that they have to adhere to. Um, but I'd say some of the ones that we get that kind of kind of fall into, say, a normal residential broker's lap that happens to be a limited company, sometimes there's a fair bit of digging they need to do and okay. and often you know picking the phone up and, and us guys out on the road you know we we get regular conversations from a broker who will ring up and say I've got a limited company deal here I'm not going to lie I'm not too sure what to do and we will just say we'll come out and speak to you or we'll talk you through anything you need to be aware of to do with it until you've done your first limited company deal some people I don't know what your experience was but my experience as a broker when I got a limited company deal was oh my god um, what back do in I the do? day now it's common yes, everyone's absolutely. doing it yeah. but then once you realise once you're doing your first when you're going through you realise the certain things that you need to look out for predominantly will be the shareholder and the ultimate beneficial owner um, so I, it, but there's a lot of lenders out there and, and any lender that's coming into the marketplace seems to come in, in the limited company arena because there's a huge drive for it at the moment so being on the road all day to Paragon provide you with a car Yes. So do. let's hear, what car are you driving, Mr. White? Uh, it, it doesn't come with slippers, but I drive a Jaguar <laughs> XE. Very wow. nice. So it's, it's an okay car. It's uh, 
It's not the easiest to reverse park. Uh, Especially in our car park. Uh, to be fair, I did get in. I was quite surprised to see my name uh, on there. But um, yeah, I did manage to park in there. But it, there's quite a few blind spots uh, there. So um, yeah, but, but the thing is, from that point of view, we spend a long time in the car. So you need a car that's, that's comfortable, that's as safe as you can be, uh, and that uh, can get you around, really. What so. do you listen to in the car? Uh, predominantly brokers uh, yeah. talking on the phone, um, obviously hands-free. Um, but we were saying earlier, you know, it, it, I'll often have podcasts on. Uh, Be in for a penny podcast? Absolutely. That's the yes, right answer. Well, yeah, yeah, sorry, I missed your cue there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just anything along. So I, I often will listen to talk radio, talk sport, just yeah. kind of getting an idea on what's going, especially on Mondays after the uh, after the weekends have gone by. But mm. um, yeah, kind of a mixture of kind of what's going on. Sometimes, I'm not going to lie, it's nice just to turn everything off. Yeah, have and a bit of peace nice and quiet. I do that I'm just going to drive for 10, 15 minutes here and I'm just going to listen to the sound of the road uh, and enjoy that. So um, uh, so Paragon Banking Group, they're listed. Oh, yes, well. Is yes. there any pressure to when you're kind of looking at doing business and loans to, to kind of think about the shareholders and kind of the, the profit that you're going to be making so that your kind of, kind of dividends and revenues are, are maintained? There must be. Uh, at my level, there isn't. But obviously, if there is, we kind of get it fed down. Uh, the, the one thing that we're always told is that the quality of borrowers that we're lending to in terms of credit files, etc., and the quality of properties just needs to be, I wouldn't say A1, that's probably a bit of a harsh exaggeration on it. But if you get the borrowers right, you understand their portfolios, and you get the properties right, then the returns should take care of themselves on the back of that. It's not just mortgage finance that we're involved in now. We are the bank. We have aviation finance, um, right the way through to asset finance. We've got development finance. So you've got all sorts of other areas that the business all kind of pulling together now. But they've all got an idea on what returns they need to bring into the business. Um, and, and over the years, the business has been incredibly profitable. Even going back to the days back in 2008, 9, 10, when we weren't lending, we were still turning over good levels of profit. Should we talk briefly about that period? Yes. Because I think that must have been yeah, a different scenario, a kind of different approach. Mm. What, what were your roles? What did you have to Yeah, do? so I joined in 2007. Um, I joined in April 2007. And in around about October, November time, I think it started to go slightly pear-shaped with Northern mm. Rock. Um, and wasn't too sure what was going on. Around that time as well, I also had my knee completely rebuilt from a football injury. Uh, so I had a bit of time off work. I had four weeks off work. Um, and during those four weeks, uh, we came to the end of 2007, Paragon withdrew from the market. Um, a controlled withdrawal from the market. Effectively, securitization markets had become unsustainable in terms of the cost. Um, and we just withdrew from the market. And we, us guys at home, we kind of had best part of three months where we were still going out speaking to brokers, but we had no products. But it wasn't, it sounds a little bit strange, but we still had a lot in the pipeline that we were trying to get through. So we kind of went through to, it was maybe sort of late March. And then they kind of decided, look, you know, we're not coming back to the market at any point soon. You know, the market had really taken a a tumble. There were lenders falling down by the wayside, kind of left, right and centre. So we effectively kind of restructured the business. Um, Some some people lost their jobs, which is a tough time. Uh, Those of us that were kept on, we were kept on as an asset, a field-based asset to the lender. Uh, And we were required to help with anything that needed doing, whether or not it was promoting new products. We, for example, during that time, we had a, a tenant assessment 
So with our so we still had underwriters in the office who had underwritten all the cases, they had nothing new to underwrite. Um, so we devised a product where we could go out to letting agents and say we can do your tenant referencing. You know, we've got Paragon, we understand buy to let. So we were promoting that for a short good diversification. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it worked really well uh, on that side. But but as well as that, we were then obviously chasing up arrears. You know, there were a lot of borrowers going into arrears in the market in general. Buy to lets always perform really really well in terms of arrears. Um, but we were seeing arrears coming through. And you were uh, walking around the high streets of Blackpool knocking on doors at this point? Yeah, um, we were. So for our regions, we we would get an instruction out and it would be a case of we've been trying to get hold of this particular borrower. We can't get hold of them. We don't know if the property's occupied. We don't know if the property's let. Can you just go out, visit the security address? Sometimes you go out to the security address, you see it's on the market. It's on the market to be sold. And it kind of just makes sense. But other times you go out there and you see the property's occupied. Occasionally you, you knock on the door and you try and speak to the tenants. Um, without obviously you couldn't tell them why you were there but some tenants were surprisingly open and would say look we let through this agent or yeah we, we pay our landlord you know £750 a month and you know they're around the kind of last week we would then feed that back to the office that when they were then trying to get hold of the borrowers um, that they could then say to them look we know the property's empty we know it's occupied uh, and for us when we were going out to speak to borrowers Obviously, you can see me. I'm not exactly an imposing character. So when we were knocking <laughs> on the your, doors... Not in your speedos. <laughs> well, no, yeah, certainly not. No. When we were knocking on the doors, it wasn't a case of, look, we're here to chase up debt. We're here to frown on anything. It was really a case of, look, it's not going to go away. Um, we need to just sit down. We need to have a chat with you. We need to get some kind of payment plan in place. All the time that you're ignoring phone calls, you're ignoring letters, it's just going to spiral out of control. And we had some real kind of eye-opening conversations, uh, you know, with borrowers um, as to why they've gone into arrears on the buy-to-let side, um, which I think we still kind of take forward into our kind of underwriting process now. And, and it, I don't know how it sounds, but it wasn't as bad as potentially what some people think it sounds it was quite educational i can imagine yeah it's a different and, uh, approach uh, yeah and and there were certain hot spots where there was where there were issues blackpool for example i think the thing from my point of view was that was quite eye-opening for me was seeing potentially how some but some borrowers some tenants were happy to live in certain conditions it was quite it, it I wouldn't say upsetting is probably the wrong word. I, you know, I wasn't in tears, but uh, there was one property we came out of, and I was with one of the surveyors, and we just said we've got to rehouse this lady. Like she can't stay in that property. So then, as the lender, you know, as part of the receiver, it's our responsibility to basically find extra accommodation for the okay. uh, for the tenant in residence. So it was it was interesting to see how things go. And I think one of the main causes that we found of borrowers going into arrears, obviously that everyone's different. There's different uh, reasons people have got was. We had borrowers who had well-established portfolios. When they were on top of their portfolio, they were doing everything, they were focusing on the basics, it took care of itself. When they took their eye off the ball, and perhaps they went off into a slightly different arena, whether or not it's development or commercial, things like that, they kind of took their eye off the ball and maybe let someone else manage their portfolio who perhaps wasn't as diligent as what they were, uh, and it soon kind of spirals out of control. So, um, but buy to let in, in terms of arrears performed really well back then. Um, and bear in mind, there was only seven of us on the road. So, you know, the, you know, we weren't out every single day chasing people up. But yeah, we, we certainly had arrears as every other lender did. Now, you mentioned football. Yeah. I know two Sheffield Wednesday fans. One, Matt Kendler. What? Okay. Who I went to university with. people now. Yeah. Two, Jason Wilde. <laughs> yes. So, how did you become a Sheffield Wednesday fan? Um, yeah, well, it's not through glory hunting, which is probably uh, no. yeah quite uh, easy to understand there. So when I grew up down in Hastings, um, there was no real football teams down there. I mean, Brighton was probably the closest team down there. Um, but a lot of my friends were Manchester United, 
Tottenham, Arsenal, Liverpool. Um, and I liked football, but I wasn't really, this was, I was about six or seven, I wasn't really sort of following any particular team. Uh, and my dad's side of the family from Sheffield, and okay. they started buying me the kits, and I kind of got hooked on it, really. When are we talking? What sort of years? We'd be talking 85, okay. 86, maybe. Yeah, about that. I would have been about eight, maybe nine about then. So, yeah, just kind of, yeah, the latter years of primary school. Um, you had some good players back in the day. Yeah, yeah we, we we went to the uh, the nineties. Yeah, other than uh, the nineties, two cup finals to uh, a certain team. I know, uh, and I went to one of those uh, games. Yes, the ninety three uh, Coca Cola Cup Finals. It was then at Wembley. Yes. Yes, and it was two FA Cup finals because they had to replay they had to when replay. they replayed yeah. the cup final in those days. I bet you didn't leave one of them in tears, though, did you? I didn't leave right. in tears. We won the one I went. <laughs> oh, no, did I? No, no. <laughs> I think I've been to three or four League Cup finals, and that's the only one we've won. Oh right, okay. So I thought going as a ten-year-old, this is fantastic. You go to cup finals yeah. and you win. Yes. Unfortunately, I've been to a lot of cup finals we've lost since then. Yeah, uh, I haven't been to a single cup final since then. No, so you wouldn't. I'm afraid. <laughs> I've been to uh, two playoff finals: uh, one down in Cardiff and one down at Wembley a couple of years ago, and uh, which we lost. But there you go. That's and what it. division are the Owls in now? We're in the Championship. And do um, you know the other Sheffield Wednesday fan, Matt Kenler? No. Oh, okay. So okay. you probably sit opposite ends of the ground if yeah. you ever go to the the guy that you wave at. The only other yeah. one there. Arsenal v Sheffield Wednesday was the first game I went to at Highbury. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. And it was nil nil. But Des Walker missed a sitter, I think. Uh, I don't think Des Walker scored all his career, yeah. so that doesn't uh, surprise me. Yeah. yeah, he was a phenomenal defender. You'll never beat Des Walker. Ne- yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, back in the day, we had some uh, some real good players. What, uh, Jason? What's the best advice you've ever been given about money? I go back to the mortgage advisor that. Uh, worked in the estate agents when I was there and I was maybe 18 and I remember talking to him talking to me about the importance of my credit file Okay, which didn't mean anything to me at the time and he would constantly bang on about the importance of your credit file and over the years that have gone by I've never forgotten it and I always remember he was talking to me about one particular scenario where I had a mobile phone contract with Orange uh, which is kind of back in the day I closed it down and they said I owed him something like £6. It was a nominal amount and I was refusing to pay it out of principle. Uh, and he pulled me to one side and said, you need to pay it. You need to pay it. You then need to argue it. But you can't not pay it. Yeah. And it's probably some of the best advice I was ever given. I mean, mm. to be fair, I paid it, I appealed it and then they refunded it anyway. But uh, we see it now and you must see it on a regular basis. We see it so often where people out of principle haven't necessarily paid something because I don't think they, they should pay it. That's the most common one is the telephone. I still had it last week. People don't pay the final telephone bill. Yes. And they get a default on their credit report and causes all sorts of problems. And and they're not necessarily aware of it because it's it's how quick they will put the defaults on there, how quick they can put them on uh, and the impact that has when an application is coming in. Um, And I'd say financial money-wise is probably the best bit of advice I've ever been given. And I don't think... Obviously, my kids are at school now, but it's certainly something when they're at secondary school that I would like, if they're not doing already, schools to really promote. Because I'm, I'm of the view that the the ease of availability credit of available credit for youngsters coming potentially out of school when they're 18 to get car finance, etc., which is great for that. But then I don't necessarily think it's spelled out to them what impact that can have when they're going for finance. Not necessarily they've got it, but it can obviously restrict their yep. affordability. But more so with with kind of payments on things like store cards credit cards and obviously the mobile phone contracts that once once your file's damaged it's uh, obviously you can repair it over a it period takes of time, a while doesn't it but it can be costly as well okay yeah so are you a saver or a spender i'm a bit of both actually i do save um i, I try not to save for a rainy day 
uh, too far ahead because uh, you never know if you're not going to make that rainy day. So I will kind of save for certain things and we'll then have a blowout and uh, and then kind of go from there. So whether or not it's a holiday or whether or not I bought a, uh, a road bike uh, relatively recently, uh, just just kind of the sort of stuff you get to do when you're in your 40s. Um, but I don't wear Lycra. <laughs> Okay. Uh, who do you bank with, Jason? Uh, formerly Alliance and Leicester, but obviously now transferred Santander, to Santander. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, I quite like actually. I got one, two, three account with them that I kind of fell into, and um, yeah, no, I'm happy with them. To be fair. Yeah. Do you prefer cash or card? Um, if I got cash, it generally gets spent. Um, <laughs> so I, but then I find it easier to keep track of cash. If I draw a set amount out at the beginning of the week, I find it easy. Where I find with card, especially with contactless, it's so easy just to it's have risky, multiple yeah. payments. And yeah, and at the end of the month when you're checking, you think, me. Yep. I realise I spent that much. So I, I try and go across. I, I don't own a wallet. So I either... we got as, a purse. Yeah. <laughs> so what I have is a bank card and notes in my pocket. Wow. That's it. That's all I ever carry around with me. Okay. which drives my wife around the bend because I do lose my bank card a fair amount oh, yeah. at home when I leave it in certain trousers and forget about it but uh, yes I've always got one or the other on me Pension or property? Uh, mixture of both um, whilst we're a buy-to-let lender I think um, personally uh, if you've got all your eggs in one basket you're potentially open to that particular sector not going uh, as well as it should Very so wise. I would split across both of them but that's a personal preference for my side of things do you have any protection in place? Uh, I do. Uh, I've got a fair amount of protection, actually, because uh, I'm quite pro-protection. Uh, and even for landlords, landlords, because this is one of the things that drives me around the bend, actually, uh, is, and this is personal, is that landlords are, in my experience, reluctant to take out protection. Um, yep. Landlords die. Landlords have critical illnesses, like the rest of us, and it can cause mass problems on there. And yeah, so in terms of my protection, uh, myself and my wife have got separate policies, life and critical illness uh, on a level term basis, even though on a repayment mortgage, but it kind of works out better to go on a level basis. Um, I've got an individual life in trust for my wife, uh, and I've got an individual life and critical illness, aside for a a much smaller amount, it's only like 20, 30,000 on there. And I also have a family income benefit, which I really like the idea of. Okay. If you won the lottery, yeah, what would you do? Blimey. Well, I did win this week, actually. Oh, with oh, 169 wow. euro well, million. I thought it was only £3.70. Oh, so, oh. Um, yeah, if I won the lottery, I often think about this, uh, and I, I'm not quite sure what I would do other than just go crazy for a short short amount of time. I think in, Maybe in, not the most sensible thing. No, it probably wouldn't be, actually. No, I mean, I, not as crazy as what I would do if I didn't have kids or wasn't married. Um, okay, but, uh, that, that sounds that like would, another podcast. Yeah. Different, yeah, <laughs> completely different one. But um, I think, you know, you, your family, your friends, uh, I think you kind of see those right. Um, I'd like to, if I won the big one, if I won the 170 million, I'd like to think that I'd be trying to invest in a football club, namely Sheffield Wednesday, and if I'd have won that 170 million, you'd probably see me on the bench on the next game. Yeah. <laughs> because if I bought in for 100 million, I'd be uh, I'd be asking to be as part of the playing squad. Uh, perhaps not starting every game. So I I think you just kind of would live your dreams out. But then on a more serious side, is to try and put something back into uh, you know communities and charities and things. And someone fairly close to me, a child, um, uh, had leukemia not long yeah. ago, and to spend a bit of time going to Great Ormond Street was was it, I can't think of the word. It, it wasn't a nice experience seeing all these children down there. You, you just like to give back to something like that for children. Uh, you really would. It's, Fantastic. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a brutal. Well, world. let's hope you win. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Absolutely. Where can listeners find out a bit more about you or Paragon? 
So uh, the main thing, I'm sure everyone will say, is, is the website. Um, we've got a main website, which is paragonbank.co.uk. It's got multiple websites on the back of that for buy-to-let, through to development, through to the residential side of things. Well, Jason, thank you very much for joining us today. No, thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. So that's all we have time for. Please remember, anything discussed in this programme should not be viewed as financial advice. But if you do need support, please contact me at mark, M-A-R-C, at cavendishcontent.com or visit the Orchard Practice website at www.topfs.co.uk. You can also find us on Twitter at InforAPennyPod1, at Mark Schoffman and at Josh Gersler. If you'd like to leave us feedback, there's a link in the show notes telling you how to do that. We really appreciate any comments you provide. And do post any financial issues you'd like us to cover. But for now, thank you for being in for a penny.